Well, thank you, Jonathan and worship team, and good morning to you, Sierra Bible Church. If you are a guest with us, I just want to extend a warm welcome. Uh, My name is Carl. I'm one of the pastors here. If you brought your own Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you did not bring a Bible, you can find one in the pew in front of you. We're in a series of Ephesians, in in the book of Ephesians. So if you could find chapter 2, if you've downloaded our Sierra Bible Church app, you will find the sermon notes, and you can track along with the sermon in the sermon notes tab on the Sierra Bible Church app. Uh, The previous two messages in this uh, book of Ephesians have have been rather challenging in its thrust uh, because it's all centered around this theme of church unity. And I want to challenge our thinking and challenge us to to be more biblical and be more in line with what the New Testament describes, how the New Testament describes church unity. So, Uh, The past two weeks have been rather challenging, I I hope, for you and for us, because it's important for not only our health as a church, but to reflect the spiritual reality that, that Christ purchased for us on the cross, that we are a united church. So last week, if you were here, we uh, erected the cross here uh, just in front of the platform, and we had the entire church come down underneath the cross, uh, put their hands on the shoulders of one another as we touched the cross, and we prayed that God would allow for us to be a more united church under the cross, that we would work through our divisions and our disagreements and things that we might not see eye to eye on, that we would work through it with the grace of Jesus Christ under the cross. Well, today we're going to kind of finish up this theme of church unity in verses 17 through 22, and we're going to see that God is building a strong and sturdy church. God is building a strong and sturdy church with fellow citizens from every tribe on the planet, and we should let Jesus build his church. Amen? Uh, let's, if you are, or we'll put it this way. There, he's, he does this, he describes this in two ways. First, uh, the Apostle Paul describes the mission of Jesus, the mission of Jesus coming to preach the gospel to everyone and for everyone. And then secondly, he describes what the household of God looks like. Namely, it's a global temple built with all different types of people across the planet. So with that, let's stand as we honor the reading of God's word in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. The Apostle Paul says this, And he, that's Jesus, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's a nice spooky word, I love that, aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may be seated and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your church, asking and desiring that you would use this message for us to become the strong, sturdy, stable, unified church that you are building here in Reno and Sparks. Help us to be a part of this worldwide movement of the gospel advancing to every tribe, tongue, people, language, and nation united underneath the cross, proclaiming peace to all different types of people. Help us, O God, to stay focused now in these next few minutes that this spiritual reality would be etched into our DNA. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know that we're going to try to make a concentrated effort to bridge the gap among the generations. Our, our church is growing in two particular demographics, those who are my parents' age and older, and those who are my age and younger. This creates uh, quite a significant and unique uh, challenge for us as a church. So I, I'm going to do something kind of fun here to start off the message. Raise your hand if you... Uh, recognize the following pop cultural references. And you can go ahead and look around at other people's answers, but I want you to raise your hand if you recognize the pop, this pop cultural answer, or these pop cultural references. Marcus Welby, MD. The Danny Thomas Show. Tony Orlando. Art Lineker. Engelbert Humperdinck. Telly Savalas, <laughs> Larry Hagman, Minnie Pearl, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, Neil Sedaka, him too, Roy Clark, David Brinkley, Dick Cabot, Howard Cosell, Crystal Gale, Barbara Mandrill, her too, Jonathan Winters, Hill Street Blues, Barney Miller, Jack Benny, okay, hands down, I knew two of them. Now let's try these. Raise your hand if you know the following pop cultural references. The All-American Rejects, Skrillex, T-Pain, Akon. You're not going to correct me on that? Come on. It's Akon. Adventure Time, Wiz Khalifa, Post Malone, Fallout Boy, My Chemical Romance, Evanescence, Panic at the Disco, Kim Possible, Soldier Boy. My first sermon was called Soldier Boy and Jesus, uh, by the way. <laughs> it was amazing. I'm glad we did not record those. 
Owl City, Avenged Sevenfold, Jason Derulo, Paramore, Gorillas, David Guetta, and last but not least, Kick Messenger. Okay, as you can see, the first list was the top 20 pop cultural references that baby boomers recognized, but millennials don't. The second top uh, 20 list on your right uh, are the top 20 pop cultural references that millennials get, but baby boomers don't. Barriers between the generations isn't just age, it's culture. One thing that one generation recognizes and holds dear, the next generation at best finds unfamiliar and at worst finds confusing and a little dated. This happens in churches when we get into quote-unquote worship wars that fight over which song should be sung on a Sunday morning. Most of these quote-unquote worship wars, they're not theological or theologically driven, they're cultural in their orientation. What resonates with one generation just doesn't make sense to another and vice versa. Yet, when Jesus arrived on the scene, Jesus declared peace to confused and warring peoples. In verse 17, it tells us that Jesus came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. We, we spent the first two weeks of kind of this mini-series in Ephesians chapter, the end of Ephesians chapter 2, uh, focusing on divisions that humans can create among ourselves. We talked about economic and political and religious and racial divisions that can divide large segments of humanity. Yet, when the Apostle Paul came to the religious Jews during his day and to the irreligious Gentiles in his day, he preached peace. This is a stunning statement because Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he did not come to preach peace to the Gentiles. In fact, he interacted with the Gentiles on occasion, but he never left the confines of Israel. His primary ministry was a ministry to the Jews. So how could Paul say that he, Jesus, came and he preached peace to those who were far off, the Gentiles, and those who were near, the Jews, when his primary ministry as, during his earthly ministry was not that to the Gentiles. How could Paul say this? Well, through the Spirit-filled apostles, after Christ's resurrection, Christ's ministry continued. Jesus is so... <laughs> united to his church spiritually, that when the apostles left the confines of Jerusalem, Samaria, and went to the ends of the earth, it was as if Jesus himself was literally preaching peace to the Gentiles. He himself is so spiritually united to his church that when his church proclaims the gospel to those who are far from God, Jesus himself is proclaiming peace to you who are far off, 
Peace to you who know nothing about the gospel. Peace to you who know nothing about the God of the Old Testament. Peace to you who approach God through the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The content of this peace was already unpacked for us in the previous verse, that he, Jesus, might reconcile us both, those who are far off and those who are near, both might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Through the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ, the hostility between God and man that sin has caused is now eradicated. Peace is declared in the gospel. This peace is both for Jews and for Gentiles. This peace is preached to homeless men who live under the bridge in Keys, under, under Keystone and those who own multi-million dollar mansions on lakefront property in Tahoe. Jesus preaches peace to every nationality, every language, every political party, every type of governmental governmental system. He preaches peace to every single person on the planet through the witness of his church as the church spreads the gospel among every people group and this is jesus's mission his peace declaration was for everyone who would believe in him his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection provides access to god for everyone who approaches god in and through him this is why i can say in verse 18 for through him, Jesus says, or Paul says, through him, Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. The Spirit unites all different types of people, Jew and Gentile, all different types of believers, so that we might all approach God through Christ and through Christ alone. This is absolutely mind-blowing if we understand it. This is amazing. We have direct access to God through Christ in his spirit. This is mind-blowing. I remember when I was a kid in the Chicagoland area, my uh, uh, favorite baseball player was, Frank, was, was the, the slugger Frank Thomas of the White Sox. He began belting home runs for the White Sox in the early 90s, and every single year I was guaranteed I would get to see him at least once. I would get to go to at least one game because the White Sox had this promotional uh, thing that if you got a certain amount of good grades, you, would, you and your family would get free tickets. So the reason why I'm here today is because of the White Sox promotion that kept me a diligent student. If I get A's, I get to see big hurt, the big hurt. <laughs> and it motivated me. And every single game, even when we would arrive early before batting practice uh, to see the big hurts slug home runs out of, out of the park, we would arrive there early and I would have my glove and just hoping that perhaps a foul ball would be tipped off of the big hurt and I could go and grab that ball and, and take it home as a souvenir. But that was, as a kid, the closest access that I could possibly get to my favorite baseball player. I couldn't get any closer than right up next to the dugout and hopefully like peer and maybe kind of see him. 
because my access is limited. I'm only a 12-year-old kid. This is what's so amazing about this verse. Through Christ, we both, both Jew and Gentile, in one spirit, we have access to the Father. We have direct access to the King of Kings. We can go directly to God, and God will say to us, I love you and have accepted you, not because of anything that you've done, but because my son bled and died for you. You are in fellowship with me. You are in communion with me. You are in my household. We have, through Christ, direct access to God. This This should rattle our theological cages. This should cause our hearts to overflow with worship and thanksgiving. You mean the most powerful being in all of existence welcomes me into his household? I have direct access to him along with all of my brothers and sisters throughout the entire world? No way! That's amazing! Because of the cross, everyone who has faith in Jesus has full access to God in the Spirit. You you don't have to stand at a distance from Him any longer. Because of the cross, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the way, the access to the Father is clear and it's full. There's nothing hindering the believer from coming fully before the King of kings. If we understood this reality, if this truth genuinely sunk deep into our hearts, and it was kind of the the framework through which we interpreted all of reality, our worship services would not be boring, nor would they be ho-hum. They wouldn't be routine, they wouldn't be ritualistic, they wouldn't be just that thing that I do on Sunday mornings before the football game. There wouldn't even be a question in our mind. What should I do, brunch or church? Like, that wouldn't even be a thought in our mind. Hmm, I don't know. Sleep in, pay for an overpriced skillet, or meet directly with the king of kings himself. Hmm. Let me debate. Let me go over the pros and cons here. Pay a ridiculous amount of money for food that I could really prepare in my own home, or go and meet directly with the King of Kings who loved me, bled, bled for me, died for me, with all of my brothers and sisters as we lift up our voices in praise to this amazing, awesome God who has granted me direct and full access. This wouldn't even be a question. This week I was introduced to a church in Australia who writes like almost all of their own worship music. They've been around for the last three years, but I just found out about them like last week and I'm like, how am I behind the times? Like that's my thing. I stay up on top of things. I don't highlight worship music that often because, well, there's a number of reasons why I don't. But I found this to be some of the most biblically saturated and emotionally engaging worship music that I've heard in a long time. And one of their songs that I found this week 
like just captures this free access that we have to the Father for everyone through Christ in such a gripping way that the song begins like this. I approach the throne of glory, nothing in my hands that I bring. I come empty-handed. I got nothing to bring to God except for this, but the promise of acceptance from a good and a gracious king. Isn't that just beautiful? That's what Paul is saying here. That's what Paul is saying. That's what fueled his heart and his mission to reach the Gentile. Free grace to approach God. No circumcision needed. No Jewish religion needed. No good works required. Just bring the promise from the king that you are loved and you are accepted son or daughter in Christ. And the reason that this doesn't thrill us and enthrall us is because we're so moved by such lesser things. Our worship can become a, a corporate American Idol contest in which the worship team performs for fans and then they have a vote afterwards whether they liked it or not. That's not biblical worship. Biblical worship is the overflow of a heart's response to the unmerited access that fellow citizens have to boldly approach the King of Kings because of grace. So what does that mean? It means that you are citizens of a brand new kingdom. You have eternal rights and privileges that are coming to you because of Christ's work and your fellow citizens with millions and millions of people who don't look, talk, or act anything like you. Look at what it says in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. I love the ESV because it keeps the translation of aliens. And that's just fun. You can ask us on the podcast uh, whether, why I like the word aliens so much, and I'll tell you there. But there's so much talk today, isn't there, about illegal aliens, border security, rights and privileges of being an American. Like, can we just collectively say together as a church that the rights and privileges of being an American are way, way, way lower on the priority list than the rights and privileges that are ours for being a son and daughter of the king of kings can we just agree on that you can have your convictions about border security and immigration all that that's that's cool you can have that but can we say that just as a son or a daughter of god that's so much lower on the priority scale than being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven and if we're in christ we're no longer strangers and aliens to the people of God. But, Paul says in verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Our eternal citizenship is shared with millions and millions of others throughout the world. We have equal rights as citizens of God's household as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, all of the early church fathers, the theologians of the Reformation, Billy Graham, and every other believer in Christ throughout the entire world of all time. We all have equal access to God the Father in the Spirit by Christ the Son. Can I get an amen? 
Now, we live in a day and age where we are connected to so many more people than we have ever been in the history of the world. Facebook literally connects 2.32 billion users since it started in 2004. That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Missionaries have been trying to spread the gospel across the world that we have access to the Father through preaching Christ for 2,000 years. And even the most generous estimates that might include some denominations that we might think are probably sketchy on this, even the most generous estimates that for the last 2,000 years, the, the church has 2.17 billion users since AD 33. That's even the most generous estimates. Facebook has reached 2.32 billion people in 15 years. We've reached less in almost 2,000. Can we just say collectively as a church, like, we want to beat out Facebook? <laughs> Can we just say that? Can we just like make Jesus's mission our mission to go farther, harder, faster, reach more people than an online social network? Can we, can we do that? Now, you might say, yes, I, uh, there's a spiritual enemy that doesn't want the gospel to spread any further than it has, and it's really difficult, but we have access to God. We have direct access to the King of Kings through Christ in his spirit, and this access is for everyone. You don't need a smartphone. You don't need an internet connection. Your soul, every soul on the planet is hardwired for connection to God through Christ, we, the only response that we need to have to have that access is faith. Brothers and sisters, let's surpass Facebook. Amen? Let's be a part of the church reviving the gospel, spreading the proclamation of peace, and granting access to everyone to the Father through Christ. And I mean everyone. I mean your neighbor. I mean your coworker. I mean your sons and your daughters. Everyone in the world can become a fellow citizen in God's household through Christ. Let's join in his mission together. And why should we join? Because what Christ is building is beautiful. It is so much more beautiful than a social network. The, the Taj Mahal was built in 1632 by the emperor Shah Jahan. It cost, if you were to put it in today's standards, roughly about $827 million. In 1983, the, the, the Taj Mahal was designated as a, a World Heritage Site and declared the jewel of Muslim art in India and one of the most universally admired masterpieces in the world. It attracts nearly 8 million visitors per year to come and visit this beautiful structure in the Taj Mahal. Do you know why it's built? Anybody know why the Taj Mahal was built? It's a tomb. It's a tomb to his favorite wife. <laughs> Andrea, you're my favorite wife. <laughs> but I'm not going to build you a Taj Mahal. <laughs> The beauty, the beauty of this glorious structure, this glorious architecture, 
is ultimately a gravesite. It's a tombstone. It's a celebration of death. The most impress- one of the most impressive architectural achievements of man is due to the death of a loved one. But you know what? Jesus is also building something. He's an architect. And he is designing right now, as we speak, the most glorious structure to have ever been built. Verses 20 and 21. The household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. God is building a beautiful household. Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone of this building. And this means something glorious for you and for me. Because of the resurrection, the building that Christ is building, it's not a memorial. It's not a tomb. It's not a celebration of the dead. The building itself is alive. The building itself is living and breathing. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone of the entire structure. He not only is the builder and the architect of this building, but he also is a material in which the structure all holds together. One commentator puts it this way. Christ is the vital cornerstone on whom the whole building is structured. The foundation and position of all the other stones in this superstructure were determined by him. He is the one from whom the rest from which the rest of the foundation is built outwards along the line of the proposed walls. Accordingly, the temple is built out and up from the revelation given in Christ with the apostles and prophets elaborating and explaining the mystery of Christ which had been made known to them by the Holy Spirit, but all is built on Christ, supported by Christ, and lie or shape of the continuing of the building is determined by Christ, the cornerstone. God is building a superstructure in his church and for his church. And the superstructure itself is the church. Verse 22. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The verb that's translated using the four words are being built together is just one word in the Greek. Soon oikodeomestai. Say that five times fast. It's a present, passive, indicative, second person, plural. This is significant for us because the tense is present. The present tense means that the verb is continuous in its action. You are being built together. This is a continuous process verb. As I am preaching, as you are praying, as we collectively together are serving, we are being built together by Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, the master and architect and builder himself. We are being built 
together. Well, what is, are we being built together for? What's the purpose? It tells us right into the, in the text. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus himself is building us together into a living, breathing temple for God. God himself dwells in his temple, in you and me, as his church, as we gather together to exalt the name of Jesus in one spirit, as we have direct access to the Father. This is happening right now, whether you like it or not. Jesus himself is building together people from all across the world to build this most beautiful structure that has ever existed. It's happening I don't care if you like it. I don't care if you think church is boring. I don't care if you have strong opinions one way or another. Jesus is doing this. You can't stop him. And he will continue to do this until he returns and everybody sees, wow, this is the most beautiful structure that has ever been composed. It is filled with people from Asia and Africa and Latin America and even those weird Canadians that say, eh? It's filled with all different types of people that Jesus himself is bringing together into this massive superstructure so that God himself might dwell in the midst of us. And it's happening right now as I'm preaching, as we're gathering, as you're praying, as we leave to serve. God himself is bringing together this superstructure called his church. In real time. It's happening right now. Have you, any of you ever designed and built your own home? Don't raise your hand, you overachievers. <laughs> Have any of you ever designed and built your own home? My parents did when I was about 11 and 12 years old. For an 11 and 12 years old, that was the worst thing that they could possibly do for us. Yes, I loved the new house once it was built, and it was bigger, and it was on a larger plot of property. We could do fun things in the yard. But they purchased the property. They worked with the architect. They worked with the master builder. But then we did a lot of the work ourselves. And I was old enough at that point to not have a real job, (laughs) but also old enough to actually do a lot of work as my parents were building this house. So during, when I was about 12 years old, during the summer, my dad would get in the car with a contractor, we'd wake up really early, we'd head to the site, and I'd spent my entire spring break swinging a hammer, hard, strenuous, manual labor. They were hot, they were sweaty, it was filled with dirt and getting splinters and hitting my thumb with a hammer every single day as a 12-year-old. In the midst of all of that hard work and manual labor, it was easy for me to say, this isn't going anywhere. This is dirty, this is sweaty, this is messy. All I see is two-by-fours everywhere, concrete everywhere, and power tools that could literally kill me. Everywhere. All I see is danger, mess, and, and hard work. I failed to see the beauty that we're building a brand new house here. Yet, to this day, my parents still live in that house. And all of the walls I built have fallen down. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) When most people see the church today, they only see it 
as I saw my parents' house as a 12-year-old swinging a hammer in the middle of a hot summer and completely filthy. The church is not a finished product yet. The point that Paul is making, you are being built together. The implication of that is there's hard work that Jesus is doing right now that probably looks really, really messy of getting these Jews and Gentiles together in one body to glorify God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, that's not going to look pretty. But be patient, because Jesus is building together a beautiful and glorious structure. God is still putting together all of the bricks, like you and me, You ever been called dumb as a box of rocks? I have. It's kind of true because you're a brick in the temple of God. And he's putting all of his bricks in place in his temple that we and we ourselves are his temple. We're the ones that are being built together and when God chooses to manifest his grace to us, it might not look pretty on the outside, but he changes us on the inside and he places us in the exact place on top of the foundation of Christ, on the excuse me, the cornerstone of Christ, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and then we have all of these bricks being built together throughout the entire world to be built into this beautiful, glorious structure. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this reality, this New Testament reality that Jesus himself is building his church in real time and present? He's continuously doing this. So how do we and get out of the way in our own agendas and kind of let Jesus do his work through us. Let me propose three things this morning. First, hey, there's our messy house. Well, not my messy house. First thing I want to propose is get messy. It's a messy time. It's a messy age. God is doing a lot of things in the midst of the mess. Get messy. Let God use you in the mess to build his church. That means get involved in his church. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't say, man, that's a really messy situation happening there. No, get involved and say, how can I help? How can I fix? What can I do that God might be calling to me? Get serving. Get to know people who might not think and talk like you do. Get messy. Second, be patient. Be patient. Not only with the church globally as God is working throughout the globe, but with Sierra Bible Church, with us in particular. We, we are not now what we will be moving forward. But we're moving, Jesus is moving us in a glorious, beautiful, beautifully designed direction. So be patient as you're getting messy. And lastly, be optimistic. It is so easy to look at the mess of the world and even the mess of the church and just get cynical and bitter. To complain and to get grumpy. But then you're like 12-year-old Carl who's just complaining about the hard work and the manual labor and fail to see that what we're building is something that people will be able to live in forever a glorious temple that God himself will dwell in and among. And we get to be a part of the hard, difficult process of bringing in all of the types of people that God is calling 
to be a part of his church. And if this doesn't fuel hope and optimism to get your hands dirty and to work hard, I don't know what will. Get messy, be patient, be optimistic. And God will do glorious things, not only through the church around the globe, but through Sierra Bible Church in particular. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a master architect. That you have designed your church to be this glorious structure built for 2,000 being built for 2,000 years as your gospel spreads across the globe. Help us, O oh God, to stay focused on you, to get messy in the details of life and details of church that you're calling us to get into, to be patient with your spirit as your spirit is calling all different types of people from all over the world and all different types of people here in Reno to, be, to join and be a part of what you're doing and help us God to be so full of optimism and hope because the good news is that the tomb is empty you're not building a monument to the dead you're building a living and breathing organism for you yourself to dwell with your people forever help us oh God to live in this reality to not get frustrated or discouraged by the lack of progress that our human eyes appear to see, but to be filled with the Spirit, knowing that the resurrection guarantees that your structure is being built currently and that it will be completed one day and we will dwell with you forever. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.